So you might notice a certain lack of audio proficiency in this episode. Uh, I managed to plug my expensive recording gear into a USB plug that no longer works, apparently. And so all of the audio where you just hear Greg and myself speaking is all recorded on the crappy laptop mic. So what I've done here is I'm recording into my very nice microphone, but then I'm going to take out all the quality and make it sound like an AM radio. So when it goes into the actual podcast, it sounds much, much better by comparison. Enjoy, guys. Greg, Wong, and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. my brains looking for something interesting to say about the number 38 for the podcast and I looked up online and I thought about it and I was like, it's it's prime it's, it's not it's 38 it can't be prime it's not it's not it. when you see an even number it's normally pretty boring and sometimes it's like oh it's just, it's the combination of so many semi-primes now you're reaching and I was really depressed because like I can't find anything interesting to say and listeners have actually said please don't forget this part because we actually quite enjoy it you crazy crazy listeners do they? <laughs> actually have yes oh, I always try to hurry us through. No, no, people, listen, when we miss out, I've been told by listeners, more than one listener, oh, don't forget the, the numbers because we enjoy what you come up with them. I'm like, okay. That's why you listen to a science, ignorance, and pod, uh, comedy podcast, I suppose. Anyway. Mine, maybe listen to a maths, comedy, and ignorance Shh, podcast. And don't numbers. send them somewhere else. Smart enough to, to uh, calculus better. Is that the name of the podcast? That's the one, obviously. That's a bit in college. Maybe it's smart enough to owe better. O better. Yeah. As in zero. As in O, one, two. Oh, don't call it O. Call it zero. It's not the letter O. Yeah, but it's the sound O. No, no, it's not. Yeah. No, I, in one of the, I didn't, people go, what's your phone number? And they go, oh, it's 410. It, well, there's a letter. There's a letter in your phone number. How intriguing. No, they go, you suck. And you go, no, no, you suck, sir. No. And you suck. And you go, no, you suck. No, no, it's, no. it's I, I want your phone number. It's like, oh, oh, four, oh, oh, oh you, that's... Oh. Eight. No, what? eight. No, it's not eight. I didn't need anything. No one, no one's ever done that to me, ever. I feel, I, I feel happy or sad. Anyway, I racked my brains looking for a 38 that would fit and nothing fit. And I was like, oh, oh well, I'll just have to say I'm really, I'm sorry. Sorry, listeners, I couldn't find a fun 38. And then I got one. I randomly came across a weird one. And told, when you stop looking for things, that's, uh, that's what I learned. Don't try and succeed. It will just fall in your lap. Fall in your lap. <laughs> but it did. <laughs> it, um, and it was, uh, everyone was Stargate. You know how we had, um, oh yeah, everyone was just Stargate. Well, well, it used to, not all anymore, but uh, with the Stargate. Yeah, and the, I like Captain Kirk. Anyway, and we've had it introducing this entire podcast. Mm-hmm. The man who plays Daniel Jackson himself, Michael Shanks. No, so, no, that was um, that was what's his name? That was with the the guy. It was Kurt Russell. And no, there no, was James Peter. And there was That's in the movie. In the TV series. Yeah, the movie Stargate. Yeah, yeah. It was awesome. And there was, was a really good series. Anyway. No, 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 no. There was just one great film and then no more Stargate. Uh, no, there was a whole series. Michael Shanks has introduced our podcast. So don't be nasty. He very, very nicely did that for us. And as uh, so Daniel Jackson. And I discovered that the length of time the Stargate can remain open for, it's one of those immutable facts of that universe, is... 38 minutes. Oh, 38 minutes. 38 minutes. Oh, that works out well, because that's the number of our podcast. Uh, We're number 38. Well, that's... um, We should use that in the intro. 
Welcome to Smart Enough to Know Better, a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. 38. Cloning. We've had Dolly the sheep, and we had mice, and all sorts of different animals. We've cloned dogs. People can now get their animals, their dogs are cloned if you, if you lose your love, love pet. Love pet? But of course, cl- we're both very interested in cloning. Yes, we are, Dan. <laughs> very good. <laughs> but we almost have the wit of one person. Cap- Yes, and we do. <laughs> uh, and of course, the interest here is cloning a human. So, a cloning a human being is, is is a really ethical, big ethical question of whether we should. And remember, your clone isn't going to be force grown, unlike every you know, Buffy or or even even Fringe. Every show seems to have a cloned creature suddenly becoming adult age, looking exactly like its predecessor. And it it comes out of a vat. Well, it, and that's because it wouldn't. It, it, the fact of the way you're developed is the, the nature side is what makes your body what it is. Really, I mean, it's quite a lot of nature and not a, a yep. lot of genes. Yes. So, but what are other species? We've been getting a lot of genetic material from Neanderthals yeah. and from bacteria, the, uh, bacteria. <laughs> viruses. So I'm talking about animals, about humans. I'm talking about other Homo, sapiens, Homo uh, sapiens. Oh yeah. And now there's a doctor, Harvard geneticist George Church, has um, told magazine Despagel that he's actually closer to developing the necessary technology to clone a Neanderthal. Ooh. And all he needs, yeah. quote. What he is what he needs. Quote, one adventurous human woman. End quote. Ah. So are you an adventurous human woman? Is are he, you feeling a bit clucky? Hey, do you want to... You're adventurous women. You like base jumping and river rafting. How would you like to squeeze something out of a hole that wasn't really sort of uh, I'm assuming you're the most that. adventurous human woman we're going to C-section if it was, you're giving birth to Neanderthal. An adventurous one would just cough it up like a hairball. <laughs> but it's, is, that, is that the right thing to do? I'm really torn on this. I'm not too sure. Well, you want him to get, you know, carry it? No, no, no. That's not... <laughs> I mean, should we bring in Neanderthal back? And they died out 50,000 years ago, 20,000 no, 20, years ago, about. Uh, is, is that Nature selected them well, for extinction. Well, they died out. I'm not, that was not the point, though. I, I, do you think it's a good idea? Do you think it's something you should... Is it, is it ethically or morally or should, something we should do just because we can do it? Getting in Neanderthal, which would be a different species out of a woman. Hmm. Out of anyone. Well, I mean, on a, on a personal level, uh, it's going to be hard for them. But then they're going to be nurtured in their environment. They're going to be raised and, and have all the food and, mm. and, and, and opportunities that, well, not maybe they're not going to have the opportunities that everyone gets, but they're going to be much better off than, say, a homo sapien who's in Africa and oh, yes. and, and starving that, to death. That's they're true, going to have yes. food. They're going yeah. to have, so they're going to have a life that's inhibited, kind of like a pet. But, mm. which, which I'm against, I'm, I'm against pet ownership. Yeah. I don't think that that... There's something that, that, that sits very unpleasant to me. I, I, I in general, try, you don't like pets in general. Yeah, well, sheepdogs mm. who do a job, they're, they're, they're bred to do a job, okay. good. Yes, yeah. Cats that, that mouse, good. But then we've got this weird thing where we go, well, now we've got a dog and all it does is it satisfies... Uh, uh, this whimsical emotional urge in human being. It doesn't still doing do anything, though. but it, it doesn't. It's it's making your life nicer and happier. Uh, it, it's actually I, showing to really reduce your blood pressure. It it, it, it sits uncomfortably oh, with okay. me, because, and it seems like a kind of a selfish usage of neotenizing a species <laughs> just true. for our own. It, it, we, it definitely seems that we are a neotenized species ourselves. We have become more childlike 
compared to our heads. You compare our heads to, to yeah. baby chip heads, we're actually closer to the babies than we are. I think we're kind of pale. And, and, and we've evolved in a very particular way because of our relationship no, with no, animals. We, no, we haven't evolved in a very particular way. We, we, we just happen to evolve. We well, yeah, evolve yes, in a particular but, way. but we, we've evolved differently we because to a stage because of our yes. relationship with animals yes. and, and, and the... And they, the there's a lot of evidence that they have changed us nearly as much as we've changed yeah. them. So dogs and, and cats to a lesser extent have changed what we do. The fact that an animal, a dog, can look into your face and work out, and from your voice, and work out what you're thinking, and they are not, not on a deep level, but they can work at happy, sad, and that sort of stuff. That's pretty weird for one species that's totally separate to look at another species and go, I know what you're thinking, or I know that you... I know I shouldn't yeah. annoy you. Is that you. what happens? Is Supposedly, is there, is yeah. there scientific... Yes, yes. I... I, I We'll try and find those. Because it before. sounds like something that a, a pet owner would no, love to no, no, be no, true. No, no, no. This is one of the. This is that. No, the, that's the thing. People kind of go, animals. We can kill animals. Either. I'm a vegetarian, so I'll go on my high horse for a second. People kind of say, well, animals don't have. When they want to justify, and I'm going to eat that horse after you're done. <laughs> so, and you know, animals can't dream, and they don't have inner lives, and and, and this is this is being shown more often than not to be rubbish. Even crows and, and uh, birds, those sort of birds, have a concept of self, and and cats and dogs are shown to have concepts of self. Dolphins have. There are other animals as well. Not just mammals. Mm. And so quite a wide range of animals are showing these concepts of self. So I think now I'm extending the, the thought of it, but I think more animals than not you're going to discover have some some level of self. We just like the idea that Betsy the cow has a concept of self. Yeah. We put a bullet in its brain and we eat it. So yeah. well, you do, you monster. Uh, so <laughs> I think yes, there's a lot of research showing that animals do have have a sense. But beyond that, dogs are very good at picking up human. Picking up oh, okay. You're part of the pack. They they become they're born with us. Mm. They live as puppies for the rest of your life. If you if you were taken away and you're meant to live with gorillas, I'm pretty certain very quickly you would work out what a gorilla was thinking. I'm not saying language, but it's body language. The, the silverback gorilla. Mm. Because that's all you've seen all your life. Yeah. So I think yes, I think there is a lot of re- there is no there is a lot of research that shows that dogs can work out what humans are thinking. Now our Neanderthal pal isn't going to be a pet though. It's no, going to be a re- it might it might be that because you do research on it, you'd want to know how mm. they develop and what they do, and that would be very interesting, mm. and would probably go some way as to benefiting us to know where we came from. Like that's a piece of the puzzle that we don't yet have. Mm. And we could, I'm not oh, sure what we've developed from that, but... Yes. but we could look at their genetic, what, like the way they deal with certain diseases. I mean, they'd have some weaknesses and some strengths. Mm. So they would look at what, we could look at that body and go, well, actually, that's really good. If we tweak ourselves in this way, biochemically or mm. genetically, maybe we could get rid of arthritis yeah. or whatever, you know. Or maybe here's a weakness that he has, which is obviously the precursor to a weakness that we haven't yet solved. Yeah. Like, I'm sure that on a medical and a scientific mm. level, that would be very valuable information. Mm. Yes. Should we, can I put my issue here? Yeah, right. I, I'm against it, and here's why, which is odd for me. I normally, yeah, science all costs! Uh, but this one makes me weird, and this comes down to culture for me. I believe that this this this, this human being, because this, we could be human, we be humans being Neanderthal human, yep. not, not, not a different species, well, sorry, it's a different species, but it's, it's of still... Of human. Of human, thank you. It wouldn't be culturally Neanderthal, because there is no culture on Neanderthal. There's no one Neanderthal that passed down the culture to that Neanderthal. Yeah. There's human culture all over the world. We have different sorts of culture, yeah. but it's human culture. That creature is well, just wouldn't be a culturalized Neanderthal. No, but it would it's still impossible. have all of the genetics of Neanderthal yes. that we study. I just don't believe that would. We, that we, would, we, we would benefit from watching their behaviour no. because it would be completely but artificial. It but it wouldn't. Now that's this is why I have my issue with it. Which, do we have the right to make it live in an environment it just wasn't designed? Designed. Let me say that word. Sorry. It just didn't live in, and it's living in a culture of creatures that it's not. And the same and, could be said for a uh, Dalmatian. 
or yes, a Labrador. Yes, but it's a pet. That's a thing that we own, and that we and we treat it like that. Or a sheepdog, or a science monkey. One of them. No, or monkeys. mice. I, I thought of this before. I got looked at very funny one day because I realised that the mice grown in labs don't have mouse culture. Yeah. Because they're not wild. They've never seen them. They just know they live in a box and they get gassed. Yeah. That's all they know. They don't. And I went, oh, and I, I know that sounds. This is obviously the vegetarian side of me coming in here, but but it's I, oh wait, they don't have a mouse culture. There's no mouse culture that except their lab culture they've created mm. in a very simple. I know people are rolling their eyes at this, but a very simple mousy culture. I, I I feel weird about. It. I feel really weird about the Neanderthal not having a culture. It wouldn't it wouldn't be part of our world. But then you're talking about culture like it's this this amazing truth amongst beasts, where it's culture is just how how we what we happen to have been born into. Why is our... I mean, our culture's massively artificial. We live, of course. We live in houses and have yeah, water coming from the tap. And we've, yeah, we've, we've created that. But I don't know. I just... Yeah, yeah I can see what you're saying there. Why, why would it be... Maybe it wouldn't be any different. Maybe we'd just go, I don't care, I'm a person. I, I, I'm weird about it. But anyway, adventure, adventurous women... Adventurous women, science needs you and your wounds. So if you want a baby, think about having a baby, maybe a Neanderthal baby. That, that sounds like a story from a film. It really does. Do you like film? I, 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 I sometimes. I wish that I knew more about film. Sometimes. Yeah, tell me about it. Oh, the Avengers, yeah. Anyway, the... <laughs> Is this a segue? Is this a clever segue? Ah, damn it, you ruined it! <laughs> Well, that's a wonderful segue into me talking about segues. <laughs> we have... Our guest on, he is internet famous, kind of. He wrote. <laughs> Talk him up! He, he wrote a webcomic back in the days when webcomics were relevant, mm-hmm. and it did really quite well. And then he tired of that, like the jaded artist that he is, and he made films. Mm. And so we had a chat to Mr. Carrington Vanson all about. The science of cinema. And I just have to apologise right from the start. He is Canadian. Oh, what is... You You are a nasty piece of work. No, they are. They are. That's what I mean. I was pointing at this map of Canada on your wall. <laughs> All right, come in, Canada. Come in, Canada. Hello, hello, Australia. Oh, they're there? still speaking to us after making rude comments about them every single episode. I haven't for two done years. that. I haven't done that for a long time. It's it's been at least six months since I made a nasty comment about a Canadian. I know. Well, the day ain't over yet, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. I forgive you. Uh, or no, not ladies and gentlemen. Carrington Vanston, welcome to Smart Enough to Know Better. I'm happy to be here, and by here I mean the other side of the world than you. Ah, yeah. <laughs> but it's the global village, Karen. You can't escape. I'm sorry. And <laughs> you're the global village idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't know whether he was being self-deprecating yes. or just deprecating. And we'll never know. Uh, Car- I deprecated myself. <laughs> now, Carrington, you have done something amazing. You made a film. What the? I have made a film. I've made one feature and a whole bunch of shorts of some that I've written and directed myself. And most of the time, just helping others that I'd meet through the film community and then help them develop their films and and have acted as other people's PAs and grips and editor and sound engineer and done it all when it comes to indie filmmaking, yeah. All right. And and the the feature one is, is Duck, Duck, Goose. Is this right? It is indeed. It was the very first film I ever made. I jumped in and said, I will start with a feature film because why not? What do I know? Turns out what I knew was very little. Cool. Then, Is it uh, finished yet? 
It has, yes, it has <laughs> finished and and uh, took about five, six years I'm in post. Wow! Because of what I didn't know, so learned a lot about filmmaking by doing that. And then it did the uh, the usual round in in festivals and the usual round of uh, nobody wanted to pay anything for it, and then oh. the usual round of my friends take DVDs, and that's what happened with it. <laughs> so, uh, so what was it that you didn't know? Well, mostly when it came to this stuff, my background was as a playwright. I had had a couple of plays produced, and I decided to go into filmmaking sort of on a whim. I'd flown up to Calgary with a very good friend of mine named Colin uh, to watch the premiere of one of my plays called The Sound of Two Hands Typing. And the director of the play had made some tiny little changes, little little tiny things that nobody would notice mm. except a massive egotistical writer like me <laughs> who just railed against everything. Like, that's wrong. My words are brilliant you may not change a comma and so i just couldn't I, I i snapped i just couldn't take the fact that i wasn't in control of my own work so i decided mm. i wanted to start directing at that moment i decided well I, I no longer like plays i'm not gonna direct plays they don't stay around <laughs> it's fine to write them but who wants to make them so right there i decided to switch to filmmaking i turned to my friend and said do you want to drop out of university and 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 make a film like if you drop out you could become a director of photography he said okay now i stayed in university he dropped out <laughs> and, uh, it was awesome and, the playing field. Always, always remember, listeners, minions are very important. Make sure you're minions the person with awesome. a strong personality to make the weaker personalities do what you want. Yes. So that's <laughs> the best part about being the director is the ordering other people around. I like that bit. I, I, I um, can say, so, so characters, yeah. I've directed some plays myself, and it's quite funny when you do meet the writer, officially a new piece, and a lot of the time, the, they're being very pleasant. A lot of the time, you get that kind of pleasant conversation of, oh, that was an interesting choice. And you're like, oh, you hate me. <laughs> you hate everything I've done. Like, no, Guess oh, what I mean by the word interesting. I never saw I never saw that character in that way, but you've really made an interesting spin on it. And you're like, oh, God, <laughs> they're going to stab me. <laughs> well, that's, that's just the nature of the creative process. I mean, writing, I, I know we're going to get to film technology soon. And when it comes to writing, I find that most of my friends who are writers deep down are kind of a bit of a Luddite most of the time. Like they, <laughs> they will pine for typewriters and pens and just the, the chiseling nature oh, of the word. Really <laughs> Exterior, because that's all I know about. <laughs> But when it comes to filmmaking, it's one of the f it's one of the few arts where a lot of the people in it are really keen about technology and get excited about it. You don't pine for the old hand crank days. You you get mm. excited about new tech. You know the the move to digital, the move to nonlinear editing, the the move to smaller cameras and mm. high def, and even for a small extent 3D and and that kind of nonsense. You get excited <laughs> and about the 48 new tools. frames a second. Yeah, for, that's the one. Oh, 48 frames a second. That's called all sorts of issues. Oh. Yeah, that's not even that exciting. If you think about it, Edison's kinescope, which is a late 1890s, I guess, that's, that's 46 frames a second, so we didn't really move that far that fast. Did you help him with that one? Was that part of your... Oh, I'm, sorry. I'm making an old joke. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, it, was, it, it fell flat. There you go. Uh, yeah. Only character can make awesome. them about himself. Yeah, sorry. That was, oh, that's un oh, dear. That's, that's, um, that's uncomfortable. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> That's an interesting point, though. We're saying, I mean, the one, the movie that that sort of made this idea in our heads come up. We should talk about movie technology. Was the Hobbit? I mean, the Hobbit's come out, and it's a big movie. It's a big blockbuster kind of movie, and but it's using new technology, and it's 3D. You can see it in 3D as well. So, in my life, though, from from a standpoint of just watching movies, in the last 25 years, except for 3D, I can't really think of too much technology that I've noticed as a user that's actually changed. 
So movies, I mean, they're being colour. I'm not that old, so colour is still a thing. And there's sound, and now there's 3D as well, which is kind of, I think, a lot of time quite annoying. But it, it doesn't seem to have changed that much. But surely it must have changed a lot since the start of cinema. Since, oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> you, you've skipped over a whole bunch of oh, things. All right, let's go to the yes. start then. <laughs> okay, we go to the start. So... I think you could argue that the first big technological development in film would be just the, in a sense, the invention of the persistence of images. Yes. I mean, you look at the yeah. 1820s, the zoetrope, and that idea that you can look at a few things really quickly and it looks animated. Like, that notion was the new notion. So, mm. if you look at art, if you look at something like filmmaking and, and you got to decide, like, what is that? What is, if we're going to put them in categories and we've... And we say, lots of things are art. Writing is an art. Uh, singing is an art. Mm. Putting silver makeup on and standing in the park like a, a still statue of, of Elvis <laughs> is an art. Whatever. <laughs> what makes filmmaking the thing? Like, what is that defines it? And in a mm. sense, it's because it's about art that deals with the persistence of image. So it's a, it's a, a linear idea. It deals with time. Mm. I mean, you know, a lot of art deals with time. You read novels beginning to end, you, even a poem that might be about like a single moment, a single thought about a single moment, a single image. You're still, it comes at you in words. It comes to you in order. So it's not well, really maybe, the, the fact but, that... Uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I read a lot of Pick a Path books and I don't know a lot about <laughs> art, but I know what I like. <laughs> I don't know a lot about art, he says. <laughs> well, but the thing is, that's still linear. You're still, you're still taking a path through it. Yes. Uh, it's, it's so... Paintings are maybe different. You maybe you take them all at once. Music no, is definitely different. I don't think you do. I think a lot of, I mean, I know if you look at, if you race past a painting. Oh, yes, I do. But if you sit down and actually, and, and, and think about what the artist was trying to do and, and, and Oh, there's no time for that. Look and move on. Look and move on. <laughs> there's too much art in the world. Move, right. burn it. I prefer to, I prefer to hear my music all at once. Like, here's Fifth, all the notes, go. I'm done. Thank hey, you. On. Move. And now all of the characters music. Ah, there we go. It was genius. Oh, nice yes. waveform. Yeah, thank Shush. you. We sort of jump very quickly past the zoetrope. The zoetrope, for those of you who don't know, the zoetrope kind of looks like a, a merry-go-round uh, that you stare through little gaps on the outside of the merry-go-round. It's like a merry-go-round with a cage around it. This is a very bad analogy, I realized. But you, you put stare... the children in the cage. No, no, no. You, have you spin pick... them real you fast. A, you have a slightly changed picture all around the inside inside piece of paper, and then you stare between the gaps, and you spin it really fast, and your brain goes, oh, there's a hopping mouse, or there's a man waving his hands, or whatever. And for those who didn't understand, that analogy, we're going to put the link into the show notes of how to make a zoetrope so you can go and see one and make one yourself out of a CD, some cardboard and a pencil and some glue. There you go. And you will be a better filmmaker than me. <laughs> <laughs> According to all the critics that I've read of my work. Oh. Well, well, actually, happens, we, can, we can pair them up and use your DVD from Duck, Duck Goose. Oh, thank goodness. to get and, some use for and, it. And use that in the, in the, in the zoetrope. <laughs> oh, I like it. We don't normally kick our guests this hard so early. Kick, kick away. <laughs> I can take it. I'm a Canadian. It's all good. I'll, yeah, he, he's, I'll say what, sorry. What's he going to do? Be nice, Liz? <laughs> That'll show you. <laughs> I'll say sorry, but I'll have a snark to it. He won't invite us to his birthday party. He will. Actually, he still will. That's actually. But I won't mean it. No, no that's right. <laughs> He'll make you buy us a present. That's Canadian nasty. That's what that is. <laughs> that's a great t-shirt idea. Canadian nasty. I love it. Just someone waggling their finger in a very, very subtle way. Anyway, oh, movies. And he's back on the train. Movies. I remember movies. <laughs> Quick, right, movies. So movie tech. So if you think about it, movie technology has obviously advanced a lot since like the 1820s. The mm. big explosions came in the, or the late 1800s. So mm. you've got the kinetoscope, which is Edison's, essentially it's gramophone for the eye. 
eye. Like his approach to it was, hey, gramophones are interesting. Can we do for the eye what it, that does for the ear? So it was really spiral images. Uh, imagine all the, the images on a, on a platter that would go in a spiral and you would project up through them. And so it was this big, big thing that one person could view at once, like a huge item, really confined things to a studio. And then you've got the Lumiere brothers and their mm. cinematograph for however that's pronounced in French. And essentially what they did was make a mobile combination camera and projector and stuff all in one. So it, here we have like 1890s, 1895, that sort of, and this massive explosion into what we now think of as film. So it was really by the time the uh, Vitascope came, which I guess is 1896, I think, 1897, something like that, top of my head, um, which also Edison again, and that's our first big commercial projector. And so it's at that point, I think modern audiences would think, oh, film has now been invented because mm. you've got a big projector, you have film, you're showing images to groups of people who have paid to see it. So that's sort of the origin of film and the technology from that point has been iterations and new ideas tacked on to that one. So we're kind of starting 1896 for, for modern film. But Hang on, did, we have did, gone did, did Edison steal everything from Tesla? I just have to. If we're no, like, if we're no, like geek no. Fans, Tesla, I have to come in there and go Tesla every time Edison's yes, mentioned. Tesla you have was to. awesome. It's by law. It's by law there's now. a lot of myths about him too. Yeah, oh, no, there <laughs> so, are. Look, yes. I, I am not. A, to be honest, I I used to be a bit of a that damn Edison's making Tesla sad, and now I've looked into it and I've gone, yeah, they were both douchebags. It's fine, and I just lost. <laughs> I'm kind of the same way. Both douchebags. Right. And, and I've lost. I've lost. I just realized from the listeners, I just lost a lot of friends at that point. A lot of people will come well, and stab me in the face. The big thing they talk about. Is how Edison too. electrocuted an elephant to show just how dangerous yeah, electricity was. That? that elephant had killed three people. That's right. It was a rogue elephant. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean you electrify it, though. It's pretty uncool. Well, what are they going to do? Hang it from a crane? That's you can, how they used you to do it. This is the green dream. You can just... How do you put you... Okay, you don't, if, you, if you have, like, Flopsy the bunny that's very sick, you don't go, oh, better electrocute it. No, you put it to sleep. They don't, I, they don't electrocute rabbits? No, well, uh, there's a big fence across Australia. Oh, man, I'm already eight months into my veterinary degree. <laughs> I was really excited about that part of it. So, anyway, so Edison, Edison, I didn't realise Edison, that's just how ignorant I am, so Edison came up with a lot of what we call film technology nowadays. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yes. Okay. Um, it was really right at the beginning there. I mean, a lot of people were doing it at the same time, though. It really, Edison mm. was quick to patent a lot of things <laughs> and see the, the commercial benefits. So a lot of people, it's sort of, it, it, the time had come for film, in a sense. So mm. we had that big explosion in the 1895s. And, oh, was, and was, that the one, was that the one uh, with, like, the train coming towards the crowd, and everyone freaking out and fainting and falling down? Was that that period? Well, there's Arrival of the Train. That's more Lumiere Brothers. So right. that's same time, though. That's 1896. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so what we have there, though, in fact, that's an interesting point you bring up that, that you didn't realize you were making a much better point than you thought. Well done, you. <laughs> Thank so, you. I'm very intellectual subconsciously. Because I think there's, there's a lot of ways to approach the idea of what the heck is technology in film and what's important and what does it do and, and what's covered. So one, one good approach, and by good approach, I mean my approach, would be to look at <laughs> film is an art, so it's an, it's an intentional thing. Like, it's, mm. it's somebody trying to connect to an audience, it's somebody trying to manipulate an audience, make them feel something, make them think something, take them on a journey, tell them a story, whatever you want to do. Mm. So, if you're trying to interact with an audience and, and reach out to them, that affects 
what you choose to use in your artistic tool belt. And so sometimes when something gets invented, it doesn't necessarily improve film. Like a lot of mm. times people will say, you know, film is a film technology is a teleological thing. Like we get better and better and better. Yes. But to think that way is to say that things in color are necessarily better than things in black and white. Yeah. And things in 3D are necessarily better than things that are not. But popcorn's better silly. with butter all over it. That's right. Also, with for example, just, I want to jump ahead here. I mean, we'll go back, but the whole, let's go to The Hobbit again, 48 frames a second. People are saying, well, 48 frames is better and it's much more crisp, but we're having an issue now that you're seeing that it looks like a set and it looks like makeup and it, that's, that's going to have to change if it goes on, of course. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it's not necessarily better because what you've done we're so used to that sort of blurred reality and calling it reality of the film that it's not actually real what you're trying to say there i agree with that's confusing uh, <laughs> well well but but if real is what you're going for then things that would increase reality might be great but like yes. for a lot of older actors the advent of high death mm. is hasn't been a great thing because <laughs> you know, a lot of people look better in the soft fuzziness oh, yes. of actual film i, I must say it's, so, helped me, it's helped me a lot in relationships you know, meeting people <laughs> in the dark it's very very useful I, must be. I find first dates, I generally have a gel in front of my face. Absolutely. What I do is I make sure any date girls with um, with glasses and smear Vaseline on their glasses when I meet them accidentally. Oops, Vaseline. And then everything's fine. I always used to wonder that. Am I attracted to girls with glasses because I like the nerdy kind? Or am I attracted to them because I figure if they've got bad vision, I've got a better shot? <laughs> uh, that's hard to that's know. That's the chicken and the egg question for the modern age. <laughs> You're looking a little bit more Bruce Willis and a little less Mickey Rooney. <laughs> Mickey, Mickey Rooney? No. Mickey, no, no. He, uh, Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke. Yeah. Sure, why not? Well, Mickey Rooney, I must admit, if you, between those two, I, would, I don't know which one I'd pick either. <laughs> Who is the racist one in Breakfast at Tiffany's? That's, um, that was Rooney. All right? of them. Good. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> it's like, but then again, no art form really is, is, a, is a capturing of, of truth. Let's face it, paintings aren't. That's why I found really funny that people sometimes think photography is honestly, you know, they're, they're grabbing well, a truth. And even that's not true. I mean, people, people touch up their that. photos and, and, uh, and, and you... Well, you, true. Okay, but if you take... So, like, like, for instance, we could then... This is an argument that would be like, are you impressionist or are you expressionist? So mm. if you look at the French impressionist movement, that's about composition, about the importance of individual shots, and the idea that the... F Art is what is left out. Like the art is in the difference between the film and the object being filmed. Mm -hmm. So it's in black and white, and that's better because the black and white is different than reality, and you focus on texture and stuff. Mm -hmm. The idea that the effects or focus or framing, the idea that the frame isolates what you're seeing. So when, if I film an orange on a table in a French Impressionist film, they'll say the art comes from the fact that the frame means you can't see as much of the room as you would if mm -hmm. you were really there. The, the room is covered in bananas. Is the yes. Yes. Well, that kind of idea whereas if you look at like the expressionist idea instead you got the mise en scene the idea that it's the design aspects everything's in front of the camera and mm. it's all about the sets and the props that, and trying to convey a more reality to it mise en scene is that right yeah, sure, why not? Every, everything, I'm Canadian. I everything in shots. It's, well, it's that, French. You're supposed to be French. You're Canadian. Come on. <laughs> that just means I'm spoken to in French. Oh, right. <laughs> totally different Tell thing. me about it. <laughs> so, 
but it's one of those things. So that really touches on this this whole idea that just because a, a technology comes out, it doesn't necessarily make films better. Mm. Uh, an impressionist film is not improved by the advent of color. In fact, most impressionists would say, "Oh gosh, that looks more real. Mm. There's a chance I will lose art in that." Yeah. So so it comes now. At the same time, like we talked about earlier, filmmakers, for the most part, are often enthusiastic adopters of new technology. It's exciting. We want the new toys, that mm. kind of stuff. I do it as, as well, so it's great. Mm. But normally, when a, new, when a new technology comes to filmmaking, be it digital or high def or 3D or color or synchronized sound or what have you, <laughs> there will be a rush to put out films in that technology. It doesn't mean there's a rush of, oh, look at these amazing new films. It normally mm. takes a while to figure out, well, how is that technology? best utilized. Yeah. Maybe it becomes really popular and common, like color and sound. Maybe it doesn't, like Smellorama or something like oh, that. Oh, so yeah, there's other the original, technologies that the original, didn't the 80s really 3D, catch on. I mean, I mean, you probably remember as well, in the 80s on television that you'd watch the cyan red 3D. So you wear little colored glasses and it would have slightly different pictures for your brain to pick up. And is people, Exactly. And so cowboys would like fire guns at you and Indians would, would throw spears and it was all very silly. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> Walking down the street who are these cowboys and Indians? That's true. And actually, from a, from a colorblind point of view, I hated that technology because my brain isn't quite as set up to, to see the, the cyan and the red like you are. So I kind of go, eh, it's kind of cool. Don't judge me. <laughs> it's awful. You don't know how I see. Don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> you filthy color typicals. That's what you are. <laughs> color typicals. Heterocolatives. <laughs> oh, nice. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm I would trichromating all over this oh, show. Uh, shut up. Yeah, I'm a, di oh, I'm a dichromat and proud. Woo! Anyway, me and dogs. <laughs> Poor character. We're, just, we're, de we're derailing him, which is great. Yeah. No, it's, I'm just thinking, me and dogs, the Dan Beeston story. And that was Greg. I'm Greg. Come on. Oh, I can't tell you, but part you're all Australians. No, no, look. Hang on. I'm Greg, and I'm Dan. Can you tell the <laughs> nice. difference? Nice try. <laughs> <laughs> we get lots of emails about this, by the way. Lots of people send us emails going, uh, Dear Greg or Dan, I'm not sure which one is which. The whiny one. And you're like, we're, we're still not sure which one's which. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one who whinged. That could be either of us. <laughs> Let's put this train back on the tracks. Back on the tracks with the train. I need to scare an audience with it. Stat. <laughs> So, yeah, so when you look at something like modern stuff, you look at the uh, 48 frames a second, what, what they're trying to do with The Hobbit. Mm. And so it's exciting and new. And somebody like Peter Jackson, obviously, is going to embrace it. Like certain filmmakers, Lucas, Cameron, that kind of I, I say it with one name as if we yes. hang out at parties. <laughs> you know, you know, Lucas whatever. Cameron? I've never heard of Lucas, Lucas Cameron. Cameron. <laughs> you know him. You know, they'll embrace this tech not necessarily because it's going to match a filmmaking technology, but more that they're really into tech. So it comes down to the, the sort of filmmaker you are. And they're but an early adopter, is... which is probably good that someone like Peter Jackson is an early adopter, so he'll take it and spend a majillion dollars, and that will make hopefully make the technology a bit cheaper for the next person to do it, and it'll become more Absolutely. useful. But it usually takes quite a while. Historically, it's taken quite a while for almost any technological development in filmmaking to find its place and to find out how can it be really meshed into films so that it helps storytelling or it helps make mm. a particular sort of film. Like when, when sync sound came, it wasn't necessarily a, a big improvement. I mean, when you look at everyone will uh, immediately talk about the jazz singer, so 1927 and that sort of idea. But sound in film, synchronized sound was really, it wasn't until four or five years later when you get stuff like Fritz Lang's M where filmmakers now could use sound as 
part of the storytelling option. So like using sound as motif, using sound as a technique, not just sound for its own sake or color for its own sake. When, when color came, like the idea that you know, films were in color, at the beginning, it seemed really artificial to audiences. It was used mostly for fantasy and the fantastic, because how weird that is. It, it, <laughs> it didn't really surprise anybody that, that something, even something as, as popular, he says even as popular, it's so dismissive. Oh, look at me, I'm such a hipster. But even <laughs> as, as, as a biggest film, it's like The Wizard of Oz and the idea that mm. when she goes to Oz, it's, it's in color because it's fantasy. And, yeah. and while we see yeah. that it's kind of kitschy now, that really did reflect early film audiences a view of color. It was kind of weird and artificial. And that's why you see films like, um, I don't know, Citizen Kane. Mm. So black and white, 1941. So well beyond the origin of color filmmaking was to- definitely available. Partly it was a budget choice, but mostly that's the better way to tell that story. And I think where you get into trouble is when filmmakers adopt a technology just because it's there. And and you'll have that rush of a few years like we have right now. Everything's in 3D. Yeah. Doesn't matter whether 3D makes that film better. It's mm. just, we've got 3D, let's put it on everything. And after a few years, it should shake out to see, well, what, how does 3D really work? Because 3D doesn't yeah. really give you... If I stand in a street and I look down a street, I see a whole bunch of layers. When when you're watching a 3D film, it's more like there's three planes. Yes, it is. in the background, yeah. middle, and, and it's just, that's all you're really getting. So it works great for animation, like old Bugs Bunny cartoons. It doesn't necessarily work great for a lot of drama. So we'll have to see how that sort of works. And it makes the screen a lot darker, so that can affect a film. And, and so I, it's I, about, I used to hear that a lot. So the whole darker thing, I heard a lot of podcasts talking about movies and people complaining about the darkness. I used to go, what are they talking about? Because I saw quite a few 3D movies, you know, like Avatar and those sort of ones. It was not that dark. But I realized there's different sorts of 3D technology. And it's one that does seem to make things a lot darker. And it's one the more modern ones don't. So I, I don't know. I can't say much more than that. I don't know, you know into it. But it's, in Australia, I think we were later adopters of that technology compared to America and compared to Canada and the rest of the world. And uh, so we've got the later technologies. We don't normally get that darkness issue. But a lot of people do complain about it. Uh, oh, yeah. It's much darker. It's about you know 15% darker in yeah. Canadian cinema. It's really and a lot noticeable. Of, a lot of cinemas don't set themselves up to run the bulbs bright enough mm. because the bulbs are very expensive. Mm. So you can save money and sell tickets cheaper if you put less energy into the bulb yeah. and so it's a darker experience yeah, you silly. guys know about dim bulbs hey, <laughs> oh hey wait hang on burn burned by a dim bulb hang on wait I'm going to put that on the podcast now. Burned by the dim bulbs of smart enough to know better. Technology such as the, the 3D, you're right, the 3D planes, you, you, it's adding slight amounts of depth. It does look wrong. Uh, and also, I'm really against the idea of, of re-issuing a movie in, now in 3D. For example, one I saw, they're re- releasing out here, probably around the world, Monsters, Inc. in 3D. And now Monsters, Inc. is a great movie. I really enjoy it. I have no interest in seeing it in 3D because it wasn't made to be 3D. It wasn't created to be a 3D film. So by adding layers to it, I kind of well, the director wasn't trying to make a 3D film, and, and I don't understand why they want to make everything 3D. Well, most films are, even nowadays, are actually just retrofitted to be 3D. They're not actually filmed with a 3D camera. It's done afterwards. And it's easier to do that with animation because you, you're, you're just rendering it out. So you've already got the depth, so you can just render it out. So animation, like Monsters, Inc., is easier to make an accurate, after-the-fact 3D effect versus okay. just retrofitting a, a, a regular filmed mm. film. So Avatar oh, was, oh, oh, Avatar was film 3D cameras, wasn't it? That was actually made as a 3D film mm-hmm. from the ground up. Actually, Avatar, was, it looked so good because for the most part, it was actually acted out live in front of you. You probably just didn't realize it, but they bring in everybody and, and they ah, have a little sheet yes. in front and they just... Oh, that's right. I thought I could smell Sigourney Weaver. 
<laughs> well, I always is that, that what that was? <laughs> that, uh, that's, that's, we got that Weaver funk. Uh, get the spray. <laughs> I don't know why I picked Sigourney Weaver. I actually quite like Sigourney funk. Weaver. She wasn't the one stinking that movie up. Anyway, that's terrible. I don't know why. I'm sorry, Sigourney, if you're listening. <laughs> She's listening. But, <laughs> Not anymore. Oh. She switched off about 14 seconds Is she Canadian? Ago. Is she Canadian? <laughs> I don't know. You lost me at Weaver funk. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dance craze. All the kids are doing it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so I th- <laughs> I've, I've amused myself. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I was going to say that technology in the the viewing of films, this idea of the introduction of sound, the introduction of um, color, the introduction of you know, different phil- philosophies of of film, were themselves in a sense technology. Early on, you just have let's display a thing. Like here's a here's a short single shot film of a guy who's a bodybuilder, and it was later at the montage pictures, the idea of cutting and like so. Technology often has developed in the way a film is processed. Like hey, it we're was going much to later before things. they got those uh, uh, the bodybuilder guy got another bodybuilder guy and had them have intercourse and then sold that for yes. on the internet, and that sold like hotcakes. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> Beefcakes. Hot buttons. Hot, hot, so, so like beefcakes. Having, <laughs> having sex. But just that idea. Like, it, a lot of people won't think that editing, the idea of cutting a film together and, and showing something from one time and something from another time or something from one distance or angle than a different one for emotional effect was itself a, a, an invention in film. So like that... For there was decades before that existed in film, so things we just take for granted now, and the idea that you'd watch people walk into an elevator having a conversation, and then you watch them watch them come out of the elevator, continuing that conversation, and not be worried <laughs> about the fact that you didn't see the stuff in the elevator. It took a while for filmmakers to realize that can be the language of film. But lately, I think what we've seen in technological developments, really since the 80s, has been more behind the scenes instead of in front. 3D is definitely a you know out in the public technology, but most most of the big changes have been in the advent of digital filmmaking and the HD processes and in nonlinear editing and that kind of stuff. Things that the audience wouldn't necessarily see, but changes the process a lot. You just mentioned something. I don't honestly know what nonlinear editing is. Everything else Nobody does. To- totally made up phrase. Totally meaningless. Just means anything you want. No, okay. So, uh, and, and, I, and what's really sad is I actually believe you for a split second. Then my brain was like, I knew they were screwing me for years. Okay. Two people so, nodding sagely. Do, do you know what the word editing means? Yeah, I know what editing means. Yes. Do it, you know what the word linear means? Um, as in a straight line, yes. Ah, so what do you think non-linear editing means? As in not editing in a straight line? I don't. That's what well, I'm cutting I'm, out all the good stuff okay. and leaving all the stuff in the middle. No, okay. Ah, that would so, be the Dark Knight Returns then. No, Dark, Dark Knight so, Rises. That's non-linear. <laughs> Edited. That was that, anyway. That was. I didn't like that film. That's the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> well, a point well made. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, oh so, wait, hang on. Hang on. So, 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 no, okay. Yeah, because you, you you film. This is like when you film the film out of order, and then you can go back and put it together. Oh, in you mean the like right Memento? No, good, no. Yes, but wrong. <laughs> <laughs> totally wrong. Oh, damn it. What, what are you doing? So you, so hang on. So as Dan said, so you film, so you, you, feel, you don't film everything in order. You just put no, it no, back together. No, no, he said I'm totally wrong. Hang on. Who's, oh, which, who was wrong? Is, was, was Memento wrong or was filming it out of order and putting it back together wrong? You do normally film things out of order and put it back together, but that's got nothing to do with nonlinear editing. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's, that's just Help us, Carrington. Please help us. We're ignorant. <laughs> Sino, okay, Sino news. So we shouldn't we shouldn't have been so mean to him at the beginning of the podcast. Now he's just jerking us around like fish on a hook. So now I will dangle my knowledge above you and make you leap for it. <laughs> <laughs> jump, jump for the ideas. 
So a non-linear editing. Well, let's back up a bit. Original editing, you've probably seen in old films and maybe old TV show, the idea of somebody editing. And they've got those reels of actual film. So they're mm. sitting in a room and there's long strips of film hanging on the wall. Mm. And they've got a little tiny machine that they're looking into, like Spock's little recorder on the bridge. <laughs> and they run the film through. They get to a point where they think, oh, here's a good place for a cut. And it's called cutting because they literally would cut the film with chop a scissor. Or normally a little, a little guillotine would chop the film. You grab another piece of film, lay it on top of each other, literally tape them together, mm. pressed together with a bit of tape, and you've made a cut. So you're chopping up your actual film. And so when you're done, you can put that right in a projector and off you go. So that's, lin that's actual destructive filmmaking. You're chopping it up. That's why mm. we call it cuts. And, and things, you make a and film. things end up on the floor. They go, oh, that ended up on the floor. And See, that literally, because it was uh, on the floor. So you were, uh, end up on the cutting room floor. You were literally cut out of the film. It was actual film stock. Yeah. You were actually cutting. So you can imagine as we move to digital, well, first to move to video, but then to different forms of digital filmmaking and digital editing, we're taking the footage that's filmed, and nowadays normally that's done digitally, so you, there's no actual film stock. But even if it's film shot on film, it will get transposed into a digital medium for editing. Right. The film itself will have time code. So there's a, a number assigned to basically every frame on the film. It'll say it's this shot, this time code, we're, we're eight minutes into this scene, this, this, how many frames a second, that sort of thing. Mm. So everything is done with a timestamp on it. I can then take another version of the film, basically a copy of all that, and I can do my editing and on the copy. So I'm not touching my original footage, whether it's oh. original film stock or original, I'm not, I'm no longer being destructive. Mm. I'm just making copies and assembling it. And then once I've picked my cuts and where I'd like things to go together, it can just export a list and say, you know, this uh -huh. piece from that time code and go to this piece of that time code. And, and it creates what's called an EDL, an edit decision list. And with that, I can go back to the original footage and then assemble an, a, a real cut together uh, image mm. or just use my digital copy to export a version. Mm. So a nonlinear editing is basically something that's non-destructive, out of order, grab my pieces from anywhere I want and, and put them together versus physically doing it one piece at a time in a linear fashion. Now, I just like to point out that I felt really bad that that I didn't know what non-linear editing was, but no one would know what that was unless he worked in film. That's quite complicated, what you've just said. I understand it now, but that I, I don't feel so bad about not knowing what that meant. I knew what it was well, the you... entire time. I just didn't want you to feel bad. <laughs> you did not. Liar. Look at his lying face. Oh, uh, liar. So, okay, so we, we're going to go back, though, to... Uh, yeah. So you got started creating film, and your first one was a, was the feature film Duck, Duck, Goose. was Duck, Duck, Goose, and that was... We shot it in 2002. I started auditions for it in 2001, and we shot it in 2002, and it was complete by uh, 2006 or seven. I think. <laughs> it took me. a long time. I made a whole bunch of short films while I was still editing that first feature. <laughs> wow. I suppose because things I didn't know. There were so many things I didn't know about filmmaking. My whole life, I loved film. From a kid, I was, I was two things. I was a kid who loved film, and I was a really stupid kid who loved film. I would go <laughs> to the audience. I would go to the, the library and I would watch movies. You could rent, you could get it in a little table and it would have this little tiny machine, like an old-fashioned editing machine where you'd have a, a big VCR and a little tiny window you could look in to watch movies. And I could check them out on these old reels 
case, and I would watch classic films, not realizing that if you opened the back of the case, it would have the tapes of sound that you're supposed to play at the same time. I assumed <laughs> all films in black and white were silent. Of course it's silent. It's old films. I watched and enjoyed all these Kurosawa films that are supposed to have dialogue, and I didn't know that dialogue. I would just I would watch old German films and old Japanese films, and, and I could really follow the film because it was, you know, these were well-made films that really had a great cut-together narrative, and even without the language, I could understand the plot and get what's going on most of the time. And it was only when I, I remember reading a book in the library once all about films, and there was a quote from something, like a quote from, I don't know, a, uh, some, some early German film, and I was like, how... How can you have a quote? Nobody, nobody speaks in these films. Like, oh. Lip reading. They're very good lip reading. Talk about a dim bulb. So anyway, I loved film my whole life. Just, just adored it. But never, ever did it even cross my mind that I'd want to make a film mm. because it seemed like a big, awkward, expensive, terrible thing to do. Like just cutting all that film and and just it was just it, it was just such a pain mm. with the advent of digital filmmaking the idea that i could hold up like a canon camera that's no footage like there's no there's no nothing that's not digital i'm just it's all in the world of computers which is the world i feel very comfortable in the idea that i can just <laughs> film in something digital bring it into my mac and mostly i can do it all myself i don't need some other editor now it's really digital filmmaking empowers one person to make a film be writer director editor do every color correction do all yourself really easily on a simple computer suddenly it'll appealed to me. It appealed to me because I have a massive ego and I never wanted to share. So now this playwright can say, oh, I can make a film and I don't have to share credit with anybody. It can be a film by me and everyone else is a, is a speaking prop. They're just lamps with lines. This appealed to me. So that's why I got into film. So it's right around that time in the early 2000s that you could get decent looking digital cameras. Nothing like we have today. I think I shot Duck Duck Goose on a Canon GL1. So it's a 720 by 480 resolution. Oh. So it's standard def. It's basically like an old... And it looks just so terrible now. I wish I had waited like three more years to make that film. It just <laughs> looks awful by modern standards. But hey, what can you do? Um, so it was the... And that's the time where a lot of technology suddenly became very reasonably priced. You know, for $10,000, you can buy at that time, everything you need to make a feature film, lights, camera, editing system, the whole thing for less than 10 grand is what it cost us to make that film. Um, and it's something you could never do before. I mean, that was the big change when it came to digital is the, the, the cost went way down and, and the empowerment of the individual went, went way up. So 2001, 2003, that period, you could start buying very reasonable cameras that were all, you know, firewire cameras. At that time, they used tape. So everything had was still working on those little digital tapes. And that cost me a lot in post because those things die and I hadn't realized I should back them up as quickly as I should have. Um, so that was a pain. And nowadays things sort of camera technology has changed a lot, mostly in making it bigger, faster, larger files, larger resolutions, going to high def and that kind of stuff, but more the move away from tape and onto hard drives and solid state media. But the bigger changes in technology over, say, the last 10 years have been in editing. That's where massive changes have come with the advent of, of Apple's Final Cut Pro, which was a hugely disruptive force in editing that suddenly <laughs> instead of having a 50 or 60000 Avid system, you had a you know a two thousand dollar piece of software that could run on a home computer uh, and edit proper real feature films. Massive difference and that sort of stuff. So the nonlinear editing and the suddenly having hard drives big enough. When I when I did Duck Duck Goose, 
I, I was buying 60 gigabyte hard drives and I had to buy five or six of them to hold the footage. <laughs> and it was outrageous. I was like, look at these huge hard drives of 60 gigs, <laughs> whatever. Um, but it was, it was hard and it was expensive. And so the, the fact that hard drives have gotten very cheap and massive has really enabled filmmaking probably more than any other technological advance because that's why you can have high def is because it's cheap to buy these massive terabyte drives. And it's fast. Yeah, the fast drives, like flash drives and yeah. stuff. Well, yeah. you need that more because the amount of data involved in a high def screen, as you double the resolution in both directions, you're, you're having four times mm -hmm. more data, yeah. even if it was the same bit depth, but generally you're having much more color information per pixel and that sort of stuff. So the, the file sizes just grew logarithmically and mm. just massive. So now that you've had this experience and you've lived through, a, you know, obviously a very interested in the history of film and you've lived through a period and you've worked on film, if someone was coming now in 2012, a young, bright-faced and bright-eyed, bushy-tailed film noob, and what, what advice would you give them? Like, what would you say, focus on X, Y, on here are the three or four things that I would say you should focus on? Well, the main thing is to just do it. Like, you'll hear that people say this a lot, but it really was, as much as my first film ended up sucking because I didn't know what the heck I was doing and I didn't realize <laughs> a lot of things, like I wouldn't realize that the camera picks up a little more than you can see in the viewfinder. So it's like, oh, I spent a year digitally deleting light stands and people's heads and stuff from the <laughs> edges of my film. So oh. not really, you know, testing your work is good. But at the same time, by just jumping in and spending a couple thousand dollars and coming away with a feature film, mm. you, I learned a crazy amount. And then that enabled me to go off and make tons of other shorts and just have a lot of fun and, you know, be more successful and actually trying to sell some films now in my shorts. So I think the thing more important than anything is a lot of people, I go to film meetings like all the time and I talk to people who month after month and now year after year all talk about the film they'd like to make. Mm. Which is just crazy because just, just you know buy a camera and shoot it. it. Like, well, you can always shoot yeah, it again. Like, like whatever. Things now. I mean, I don't know. They're not, I know they're not film cameras, but nowadays people leap off buildings with a high, high definition camera on their head and it picks up perfect vision of what they're doing. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And, and that's like two hundred dollars. And, and the, the main thing I would say is to focus on what you can, what you have at hand. The biggest mistake I think people make if you want to be an indie filmmaker is to, if, if, if you're writing, say, your own script or if you're, you're optioning one or picking one up, is to make sure that the script isn't calling for something that you can't get. Like mm. the thing, everybody wants to make a film that they need to go and raise 200000 to do, which is just crazy. <laughs> Look around at what you have. My Duck Duck Goose, the, the main set was the apartment that I lived in at the time and the second main <laughs> set was the apartment that my my dp lived in and it was the parks nearby and it was everywhere i could film for free mm. and or that we could sneak into because you, you just can't pay that kind of money so it's i wrote the script looking out the window saying hey a, a scene would look good on that bench okay now there's a scene <laughs> on that bench like you have to write for what you don't Karen write did, it character events on the moon bench orientated <laughs> we've noticed i am very bench in fact that whole the duck duck goose is all about people who meet on a bench and go back in time and go back to that bench <laughs> It's all about the bench because the bench was available outside my window. People always want to make zombie films. Uh. I want. Hey, hey, my next film, my next uh, feature that we're shooting in, in fall is a zombie film. It's Don't all, knock the. It better zombie be a good films. one. It better be something but, interesting. But it, but why why make something with like special effects and special effect makeup well, and see, stuff? Zombie and... effects are cheap. Zombie effects and that kind of stuff are cheap. And the reason you make that film is something that I didn't know when I made my first film. Certain so types of films by the always make money. No, it's about money. You gotta if you make a film that can recoup it co its costs, you can make another film more easily. Zombie films, horror films, for the most part, always make money. There's a huge market for it with low standards. 
like me, <laughs> they love the film. It, it's easy to sell a film if it has either guns in it, like lots of violence or action, nudity, or horror violence. Mm. And horror violence is the easiest thing to convince people to do in the film. I just want to splash blood on you. Nice and simple. Can I give it, I don't know if you've seen one, I know uh, you do watch a lot of movies and you talk about them in another podcast. Uh, I don't know if you've seen an Australian zombie film, it's probably about 10 years old now, called Undead. And of course. You've seen Undead? Of course I've seen Undead. Oh, excellent. Oh, that's just, that's, I'm, I'm very excited. I just I wasn't too sure. But that's, that's, from, um, that's from more than a few years ago. That's 2003, I think. Oh, goodness. Oh, that's, I, I, said, I, said, I, I thought it said 10. That's fine. Uh, but I, oh. um, I actually met the people. I worked with them in, in theatre, and I'm just, I'm just um, name-dropping now. But, uh, it, but I, I really liked that film. I thought it was very... It, yes, it was a zombie film, but I felt it was very much a North Queensland, uh, where it was set, uh, zombie film, because I lived up there. And, and with the house they were in and the people they met and the situation, it was, I, I felt it was a very strange... Australian. I was very happy about that because you watch from an Australian point of view, you watch a lot of American or Canadian or British films, zombie films with their sort of feeling. But that was a very Australian. If anyone hasn't watched it, watch Undead because it's an Australian zombie film. I think those directors were brothers and they went on to make Daybreakers yes, later. Yes, that's one. Yes, that's very good. Yeah, they're very good. I know my filmmakers. Sure, <laughs> totally. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's awesome. But the thing is, when I made Duck, Duck, Goose, I made the kind of film I want to see. Like, I love horror movies. I love action. I love sci-fi. Like, I'm a hardcore sci-fi lover. But I also adore romantic comedies. I'm a big old softy when it comes to that stuff. So I made my first feature film as a no-budget, no-stars, no-nudity, no-blood romantic comedy. <laughs> There's no audience for that. Yeah. <laughs> I learned that that's a film you cannot sell. Mm. So, you know, it was fun for me, but there's no audience. If you don't have a name in it, that you don't make a romantic comedy. So these are things I've learned on the production side. But I think if people want to get into filmmaking, the main thing is to realize like how crazily easy and cheap it is now to pick up. The cameras you can you can buy for $200 now at, at any big box store are vastly better than anything you could have bought digitally for any budget 15 years ago. Mm. So the idea that, oh, I, you know, I can't get a great super high def camera, whatever you get, like, look at any movie you can rent that was made in the mid nineties. Your camera is better than that. If you spent more than $200. So <laughs> like, it's just simple, simple, simple. Um, don't spend a lot on lighting because you can color correct to any lighting. So don't buy a massive, expensive, super proper film lighting kit. Just buy anything from a, a hardware store that can have light bulbs in it and then just set your white balance. And so that's really simple. So stuff like that, like you, you spend on the camera and then on, on the microphones and everything else get for free or as cheap as possible. There you go. Brilliant. And right. mics. So my big mistake was preamps. The C... I went online thinking I was a big smarty, and I asked everybody, like, what technology would you use? Like, if you could only buy one camera that you had to film any sort of movie in, what would you purchase? So I went with that. If you could only buy one microphone, you're going to shoot your entire film in all settings with one microphone, what would you buy? Everyone told me the same mic, uh, Sennheiser ME66. Nobody mentioned you need a preamp. So I made this <laughs> stupid thing, and all my, all my sound was crazily silent. And nothing kills a film like bad sound mm. so yeah. getting decent sound with a proper preamp and a good level is so much more important than having high definition or something like that decent sound and an okay looking camera and you're off to the races that's all you need there we go so race out there budding film buffs and make your own films immediately all right. Thank, Immediately. Thank you very much, Carrington, for filling us in on all the technological advances <laughs> actually in learned, cinema. I actually learned a whole heap. <laughs> I mean, I mean a lot. I mean, absolutely from history to, to technical stuff. So that was really interesting. Thank you, Carrington. 
Of course. Thank you for having me on your, your podcast. Now, you have your own podcast that you do relating to movies, do you not? I do indeed. Yes, I have um, on Monster Feet, my little podcast network. I do a podcast called Double Take, where my friend Sherry and I review films that we surprise each other with. We both have what's called Zip, which is in Canada, so the equivalent of Netflix, where you get DVDs in the mail. But I'm in control of her list, and she's in control of mine, so we don't <laughs> know what we're getting. And every episode, we just rip open an envelope and find out what we've assigned each other, and then we talk about it the next week. And then Sherry complains that it's in black and white. That's too right. long ago. Old people, you well, old people do this. That's the fun, though, because we come from very different... I'm a, you know, I love film history. I'm a filmmaker. I'm, I'm really into the small details of some obscure expressionist film. <laughs> and she mostly likes Jean-Claude Van Damme films and that kind of stuff. So we assign each other different films that we would normally watch ourselves. So it's, it makes the podcast much more fun, I think. And I've, I've actually, I listen to it myself, and I always find it's fun to... I mean, I don't know much about film, so it gives me a lot of films I would not normally touch with a 10-foot pole. And listening to you both, I can kind of get an idea whether I will like it or not. And whether it's worth me <laughs> going not. and looking at, because you know, I'm not you and I'm not her, but I'm somewhere in the middle sort of thing. So uh, I, I find it very useful. People should listen to this podcast. It's fun. It's fun to do. So I, I do. I do love podcasting. Cool. Gary Mason, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I don't hate Canada as much. As much anymore. <laughs> as much anymore. That's very true. Well, there you go. He does do a lot. Not so bad after all. Well, if you keep him at distance and ask about movies, they're brilliant. <laughs> Thank you to Mr. Carrington Banston. Carrington, you have done a top-notch job. Thank you very much. And it's always nice when the colonials will get together. All the British colonies get together and go, we are working together for Britain. <laughs> and that's all wear double-breasted waistcoats and abs and And say, rhubarb, rhubarb, rhubarb. Yes, and then... Ten pounds for the king. <laughs> and then eye off some women with bodices, but mm. then not do anything about it. No, no, you just sit there and look at them and push all your feelings down. No, down. no feelings for down. us. Don't go too far down, kid. Oh, my feelings are they're, they're starting to ooze out of a lower entry point. <laughs> you. Thank you, Carrington. You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. And you've been putting up with Greg at smartenough.org. Make sure you tell all your friends and family. If you're anyone on the planet Earth and beyond, please tell about the podcast. Yeah, get it. So, wait, were you just talking about iTunes? Yes. Why not? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, do that. Listen to Greg. I was distracted by something. He was distracted by something shiny. Like that map of a calendar again. If you'd like to talk in quiet and rational tones about my attitude towards pet ownership, please do log <laughs> into the forums at smartenough.org and put together a well-considered and a thoughtful piece of correspondence in there and a variety of people can come in there and chat about it. And if you have something to say, you can find us on Twitter. Just look up at SE2KB. Or Facebook. SE2KB. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Are having this? The, the Canadian National Anthem. Oh, how's it go? Oh, Canada! Hey! Oh, no! Let's try again. Let's find out. Oh, Canada!
lighter than me. That's, that's a first. Weird. Sorry. Put the pop card right up against the mic. I will put the... No, th- not, no, will. Not, it's not a condom. Yeah. Licking ah! <laughs> it, baby. This is my microphone. We have contact. I can hear a Canadian, but it's very, 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 very quiet on my side. Maybe, maybe I am very quiet. Maybe maybe you're a very quiet person. How's that? I'm just really far away. That's that's it. That's how this works. Okay. It's a series of tubes. I can hear road noise. Sounds like a car drove through Dan. So you can you can hear the road noise, and I can barely hear you. What's oh man? And we're three stories up. That's Australian cars for you. Big powerful automobiles designed by the same people who make our submarines. <laughs> time you say a rude word, Dan has to edit it out and it takes about 30 more seconds to his process. Think about That's that. fucking awesome. awesome. So you go, bum, 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 Hey, an hour. I'll just put a backbeat to that. Uh-huh. Um. <laughs> Testing. One, two, one, two. That's right. That's as high as I can count. <laughs> I can go negative as well, though. Negative one, negative two. Oh, God. Just do, uh, in- yeah, don't do integers. Yeah, don't do integers. Integers are so Gen X, I tell you. Gen-, Gen Y are all about the irregulars. It's always good. E. <laughs> so it's comedy gold, damn it. Well, no, it must not. It's some sort of pewter, some sort of silver overlay. <laughs> Like an Olympic medal. So what's comedy gold lame? Yeah. <laughs> that was confusing. And weird. Good. Good. I want our audience on the back foot. Bum 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 bum